So we have four scripture readings. Jerry will read for us from Luke 9, and then Nicholas from Daniel 7, uh, Brian from Isaiah 53, and Krista from 2 Corinthians. Um, what I especially want you to pay attention to in these verses is how in our main sermon text of this week in Luke 9, we see Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And yet right after that in Luke 9, we see Jesus' uh, statement that he is going to have to suffer and die and rise again. And it's called to us to take up our crosses and to lose our lives if we want to gain them. And so as we see that uh, that huge contrast in Luke chapter 9. I want you to see the same contrast as we go through our scriptures. So Daniel chapter 7 is going to talk about Jesus as being glorious and perfect. Isaiah 53 is going to talk about Jesus as being low and despised. And then in 2 Corinthians, it's going to put these two things together for us in the life of a Christian. Um, And so look for glory, look for lowliness, and then look for how we as believers are to keep these things together. Let me pray now that God would open our eyes to see his word clearly. And then, Jerry, you can come up to read. Heavenly Father, we need new spiritual eyes if we are to understand your word rightly. Lord, I myself need new spiritual eyes if I am to proclaim your word rightly. And so, Lord, would you come and would you do a work in me right now, God, that I might just accurately and passionately proclaim your word And God, for everyone here listening, I pray that you would do the work of opening their eyes, that they might behold wonderful things in your law. And Lord, that you would help us to see clearly how your word is to guide our lives today and how it calls us and shows us the way to salvation. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and they asked, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, the one of, one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and lose it, loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, <clears throat> of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Daniel seven thirteen to 14 I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, 
and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Isaiah 53, 7-9 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that for its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Second Corinthians 6, 3-10 through 10. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Well, again, as we look at Luke chapter 9, we see in these verses both the glory and the shame of our great Savior. There's really two main sections to our text this morning with a couple verses of transition in the, ma- in the middle. Again, starting in verse 18, it says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And so here we see just this incredible statement of who Jesus is. Indeed, this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is identified as the Christ of God. Christ simply means Messiah, anointed one, chosen one. He is the one whom God has set apart to fulfill the plan that he began at creation itself. Jesus is the Christ of God. And we can see him compared to these other incredible figures like John the Baptist and Elijah. And others say that he's one of the prophets of old. So we can see that the crowds and his disciples in particular think that he is a great man, a historically great man. And so, just as is the human way, we would expect that someone this great, someone who is indeed the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God, we assume that this person is going to move onward and upward always, that his life is going to be a success, that everyone will one day praise him for the greatness of what he accomplishes, for the beauty of his kingdom and his throne. And yet... Immediately after Jesus is called the Christ of God, we read in verse 21, it says, He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this 
to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So on the one hand, we have this incredible statement of Christ's majesty, of his status in the historical plan of God. And then right next to that, we have this statement of Jesus that he is going to suffer, that he is going to be rejected, that he is even going to be killed. And yet, on the third day, he will be raised. And so this, these two verses transition us to the final section of our passage this morning, which begins in verse 23. Which says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And so this last section focuses on this call that we must lose our lives if we are going to save them. That we must take up our crosses daily if we are going to follow after Jesus. And so it presents us with this choice that we can worship and serve Christ, the chosen one of God, the one who is exalted over all things. But if we are to worship and to serve him, well, then we ourselves must suffer. We must bear crosses. We must lose our lives. And of course, on the other hand, Jesus says that we can live to gain our lives today. But if we live to gain our lives today, then we will ultimately lose our lives. The point that this is making is essentially this, that the Christian's call to suffer is not merely some moral command, It's not simply a command to be really devout or to be really Jesus-loving or something like that. Most fundamentally, this command to, to take up our crosses and to lose our lives is a command to be joined to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is exalted over all, and as Jesus says himself in these verses, he himself must suffer and be rejected and die. And it is only after he has said that this is what he must do that then he commands us to take up a cross and to follow him, to be willing to lose our life if we are going to save it. And so what Jesus is saying is he's saying that what I am calling you to do, what I am inviting you into, is not something that I will not do myself. It's not something that I somehow impose on you from above as a way that you must prove yourself to come into my presence. He's saying, no, I am simply inviting you to follow the path that I myself am taking. 
I'm inviting you to join me, to be with me, to be united to me in every way. And the glorious good news that we have in that, both in the example of Christ himself and in Christ's instructions to us, is that after he was killed, he says that on the third day he would rise again. And so when he talks to us and when he tells us to lose our lives, he also gives us the promise that if we will lose our lives, then we will find them. We will gain them for all eternity. And so the call to suffer is essentially a call to be joined with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. When he tells us that whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus is saying that I will go with you, I will go before you, that I will lose my own life for your sake. And when I lose my life, I will take it up again so that you, as you lose your life, you also can take it up again. And so Jesus here gives us the whole pattern of faith and the whole pattern of the Christian life. That the very way in which we grow in intimacy with Jesus, the very way that we grow to know him more and more, is by embracing for ourselves the path of suffering that he took and trusting that he will rise us up again. And so for the rest of this message, I want to look at what this means for us practically. What does it mean to suffer for Jesus' sake? What is the the death that Jesus expects us to endure? And after we see that, I want us to see what is the resurrection that Jesus promises to give us if we go through that death. And then finally, I want to show you how this is precisely what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ, to trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. So when Jesus calls us to take up our crosses daily and to follow after him, when he calls us to lose our lives, he is not calling us necessarily to some great and dramatic act of sacrifice, or of self-giving. I think that first and foremost, what he is calling us to is to everyday, nitty-gritty, giving up ourselves, giving up our own interest, setting God first, setting others before ourselves, and in that way, as we do that, we will very naturally experience a kind of death, a kind of suffering that we go through day in and day out. Now, I know that any of you here who are or have been parents know this very well. That when your kids need something and they come to you demanding something, they almost never come to you at a very convenient time where you just happen to be free and have lots of energy and are just ready to serve. No, usually when they come to you, you are busy with something else. You're feeling kind of tired. But you know that these children depend on you. And so what do you choose to do? You choose to sacrifice, to give up your own interests, your own energy in order to serve them. You die to yourself, in essence, so that you can live toward them. And so in parenting, we have a very clear and hands-on example of this call to Christ to lose our life or to take up our crosses for the sake 
of Jesus Christ. And so one way that we are called to take up crosses is to take up the crosses of love. Whenever we love someone else, it is always going to involve suffering of some kind. Love always has a substitutionary nature. I read this just recently in Paul Miller's really good book called The J-Curve. He talks about how love is always substitutionary in nature. That when you care for someone else, it means that you are willing to go in their place to do something for them. That they are asking you to do that perhaps they could not do for themselves or are not doing for themselves. And so you are putting yourself in their place to care for them. You are giving up yourself and you are entering into their life and into their world in order to do something for them. You are going through a sort of death, a sort of suffering every time you love someone because you are setting their interests ahead of your own. And of course, the scripture makes very clear the greatest call of the Christian life is to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is to love our neighbor as ourself. And so if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, then God is calling you to set his priorities first in your life and whatever suffering that entails, you enter into that because you love God. And as you love those around you, you willingly enter into suffering because you are obedient in love to others. So this is the first kind of death that we are to experience, the death of loving others. We give up on ourselves and we go after others. Another kind of death that we experience in the Christian life is the death or the suffering of repentance. Any of you, and I believe that all of you who are believers have experienced this in some measure, it can be painful to remove sin from our lives. Sins are, by definition, idolatry. They are putting something else in the place of God. That means our hearts are attached to something they should not be. We are loving something we should not love. We are enjoying something we should not enjoy. This is what sin is. It is treating something else as greater than God. And that means that whenever we repent, whenever we turn away from sin, we are not merely changing our behavior, doing, stopping to do something bad and starting to do something good. Rather, we are actually pulling an idol out of our hearts. We are telling our flesh, we are telling our old selves that it cannot love what it used to love. That it must turn or it will be killed. And so when we go through the process of repentance, we find ourselves suffering greatly as the idols that we may have cherished for years and years. The idols that may have propped us up for so long are suddenly ripped out of our lives. And we find ourselves having to rest in God alone. And so we experience a sort of suffering or a sort of death whenever we go through the process of repentance and of taking the idols out of our lives. And lastly, the sort of cross that Jesus calls us to take up is the cross of physical suffering or relational suffering that the world simply imposes on us by nature of it being a fallen world. 
Now, in fact, I think this is what Jesus probably has most in view in this passage. After all, in verse 23, he does say, take up your cross daily and follow me. And what was the cross of Jesus Christ? It was the cross upon which the world crucified him. The cross upon which the world showed its hatred of him. In the earlier verses in our passage, Jesus is compared to John the Baptist. And if you go up in chapter 9 a little bit to verse 7, we read that Herod was inquiring of Jesus. And the reason why Herod was inquiring inquiring of Jesus, it says in verse 9, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And so the world, especially as represented by Herod, had a bloodlust for Jesus Christ and for the people of God. And beloved, it's the same way even today, even though the persecution that we experience is not anything nearly so great as what the early church experienced or what the church in other parts of the world experience, experiences. Nevertheless, it remains a fact that as we go about in the world, walking faithfully to King Jesus, we will sometimes encounter people who hate us who hate us simply because we declare that Jesus is king and we follow after him. And so in this way, this is another cross that we bear. And we also bear the cross of sickness. And whatever other sort of physical ailment that may come our way, Jesus calls us to take up our crosses and follow him. All these things are what is involved in this idea of losing our lives. It's saying that I am no longer the center. I am no longer the primary one that must be pleased. Rather, I must please God, and so I repent. I must love others, and so I put them in my place. And I do not complain or grow weary when I experience persecution and physical trials of various kinds. And so in all these ways, the call to the Christian life is a call to die to ourselves. The cross was an instrument of torture in death, and this is what Jesus tells us to take up. And so we, as we walk as a disciple of His, and as we walk in obedience to Him, we take up our own crosses and we follow after Him. And yet again, The taking up of a cross, the suffering that is continually involved in the Christian life, is not the end of the story. We do not suffer as an end in itself. Rather, we suffer because we believe that we have the promise of resurrection coming very soon. And for that reason, as we suffer, we can suffer with joy. And yet the the resurrection that Jesus offers is not the resurrection here and now of knowing wealth, of knowing bodily health, of knowing all the earthly comforts that we can enjoy. Rather, the resurrection that Jesus offers is an internal and is a spiritual resurrection. Again, as verse 25 says, what does, it, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What Jesus is saying is that there is a joy in life that is greater than all the wealth, all the riches of the world that you could have, that there is something more valuable than this. 
And so, again, verse 24, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Beloved, the the life that we lose is so much inferior to the life that we gain that is not even worth comparing to the glory that we have in Christ Jesus. Beloved, I will never forget the night that God opened my eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. There was someone in the navigator's ministry at the college that I was going to at the time who recommended that I read the book called Desiring God. And of course, being a poor college student, I didn't think I could really afford to buy the book, and so I decided to look online and see if it was there. And sure enough, there was actually a website that just had the book Desiring God on it. And it was all, you know, linked. You could click on it to to read different chapters. I remember it was terribly designed. It had some sort of green marble background and white letters you had to read it against. It it looked really bad. But at the same time, I was very curious because I liked this friend who had recommended that I go and read it. And so there I was up on the fourth floor of Washington Barracks, sitting next to my window with my laptop open in front of me. And I remember reading the the first words of that book, and John Piper opens that book with the words of the Westminster Catechism, which says, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I remember being somewhat just amazed at that statement that somebody would actually claim to know what is the chief end of man, that we actually have one purpose, that it's not everybody on earth has a different purpose and does their own thing. No, there is one purpose for man. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So I was curious, and so I, I kept on reading. And so what Piper does next is he says that he wants to quibble with the, with the preposition in the Westminster Catechism. He wants to quibble with the and of the statement that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. He says that instead of it being an and, it should be a by. That the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. In other words, that the way we fulfill our one purpose in life is by means of enjoying the one who created us and who reigns over all. And it is by enjoying him that we fulfill our chief end of glorifying God. And as soon as I read those words, I remember how light flooded into my soul. And I found something worth living for that I had never had before. The thought of actually enjoying God, of knowing personally the one who created me and being satisfied in him was such a glorious reality that all of a sudden, everything that I had previously lived for, everything that I had once held dear, I could now agree with the Apostle Paul that it is rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ my Savior. Beloved, this is what the Christian life is. It is a delighting, a rejoicing, and an enjoying of God himself. God, the the greatest treasure, the greatest satisfier that the world has ever known or could ever know. This is what we gain when we take up our cross, when we are willing to go through the suffering of love and of repentance. In the various sufferings of life, we gain an enjoyment, a taste for God himself. 
And so in this way, beloved, we are raised from the dead to something so much greater than everything that we had just died to. That we can joyfully say that all the world is rubbish, all the world is nonsense compared to this one glorious purpose of knowing God, of enjoying Him forever, and of making Him known. You see, beloved, it really is true that you can save your life by losing it. It may seem crazy to the world, it may seem crazy to the world that you would sell all that you own to follow Jesus, that you would pick up and move from America to some foreign land to tell others about the gospel, that you would willingly give up pleasures and enjoyments that you could have for the sake of pursuing God and loving others. It may seem crazy to the world that you would lose your life like that. But guess what? They are the crazy ones because they are not gaining what we gain. They are not gaining the love of a Savior and the knowledge of Him. They are not gaining the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And so we can lose our lives and yet save them. We can take up our crosses with joy and not merely with duty. We can indeed lose the whole world and we can gain our souls. Again, beloved, this is the essence, this is the heart of the Christian life. Not merely dutifully serving God, Not merely showing up to church on a Sunday. Not merely trying to be a good person or do the right things. Not merely trying to share the gospel with others. None of these things, beloved, are the essence of the Christian life. The essence of the Christian life is that we have an enjoyment, a pleasure, in knowing the God of the universe himself. Again, in our text this morning, when Jesus says that he is the Christ of God, the Messiah of God, he is the glorious one whom we come to know. And he is indeed more glorious, more beautiful than any created thing. And so because we get to know him, because we get to draw near to him, we are able to see that all the gold of this physical world is simply dim and shallow compared to the joy of knowing him, compared to the resurrection that we get when we come to him in faith. And so, beloved, I simply ask you, have you ever willingly or joyfully sacrificed for God? Do you find it a joy right now to sacrifice for God? If you do not, then you do not know God. And I plead with you to come to him this morning. And God, I pray that you yourself would open blind eyes. Draw people to yourself. Show us your beauty, God, I pray. Beloved, it is not enough for us to dutifully do this. We must do it from a heart of joy of pleasure in seeing God for who he is. And again, ultimately, this is exactly what faith in Jesus Christ is. 
when Scripture testifies to us that we are saved by faith alone, apart from works of the law, what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ is precisely to trust that death to the world and resurrection with Jesus is better than life with the world and not knowing Jesus. When we turn to God in faith, we don't merely turn to some set of propositional truths. We don't merely turn to the fact that Jesus took his sins upon us so that we can be forgiven and live with God forever. That is true, and we do receive that by faith. But when we receive that by faith, we are also acknowledging by faith that we want Jesus' death to be our death. And we want Jesus' resurrection to be our resurrection. That is, we want to live the very sort of life that Jesus commends to us here. The life of daily taking up our cross and following after Jesus. And so if you are here this morning and you are wondering, how can I come to God? How can I know him? How can I be accepted into his presence? The answer is, quite simply, die to yourself. Say to God that you will indeed put him first in all things, that you will prefer him. Over every earthly thing, you will say he is better than every earthly thing. And not just right now, but it says, take up your cross daily. So every day, you will wake up and you will say this. You will say, Lord, I know that in my flesh today I want to live for myself. I want to live for my own private pleasures, for my own private interests. And yet, as I look to your Son, I see that it is far better to die to myself and to live for you and live for others. And so, Lord, I die to myself. I say that all that I hold dear, all that I privately treasure, I am now counting as loss. And I am trusting that you yourself will raise me up, God. That you will give me a life right now in my soul that is far better than any life that I have ever had before and that I could ever imagine. Beloved, we all must know that life of God flooding into our souls. We all must know that union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection that cannot be shaken. So that in our daily lives, we will die and we will rise again with greater joy than we had before, knowing that God is for us and that he lives in us. And children who are with us this morning, I pray for you especially that God would give you eyes to see that all the good things you enjoy in this world are nothing compared to the worth of Jesus Christ. And that you would be willing to give your lives for him. So, beloved, do you know Jesus this morning? Do you know the glory of calling Christ the Messiah your Savior? 
Do you know a joy that is better than having wealth and riches and friends and family and every other pleasure that this world could offer? Beloved, if you don't know him, would you pray with me now that God would open our eyes and teach us who he is? Heavenly Father, we indeed need you. We need your help, Lord. In our flesh, we are so blind, God. We look at the world around us and we think that this is what we are to live for. We think that this is where happiness is found. And we so often don't see that you, the most glorious one in all of creation, willingly suffered and died because you, Lord, knew what was best and what was good for us. Lord, remove our blinders. Help us to see Jesus Christ for who he is, that we may joyfully suffer the loss of all things so that we can save our lives now into eternity. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's now spend just a couple minutes praying together. This is a time for prayers of confession as the Lord leads you to see your own sinfulness. It's a prayer of petition that we would ask the Lord to work mightily around us. And so let me open us now in our prayer of confession and petition. Heavenly Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know our hearts, God. Lord, would you search our hearts now? Would you reveal to us, Lord, those things that we are taking pleasure in right now apart from you? Would you bring us to repentance? And then, Lord, would you give us hearts of great faith in you that we would trust you to do great things in our lives, in our church, in our city, and in this world. Receive our prayers now in Jesus' name.